So my title is Microaffirmations, Privilege, and a Duty to Redistribute. Okay. And it's so I just wanted to get a check on where everyone in the room is with this kind of topic. So who's heard, first of all, of microaggressions? Most of you. Okay, so for those of you who need a reminder, this is a kind of classic definition. Small harms that when repeated can accumulate in significant disadvantages for members of marginalized groups. So this would be something like maybe quite uh, small and hard to notice, like making eye contact um, enough, but not too much. Or it might be something more like something you say where it might seem like a compliment, like somebody saying to me, you're not like other girls. And maybe they mean to say something nice, but actually it's like, well, what's wrong with other girls? Like, why don't I wanna be like other girls? Um, and what happens if I am? Like, when I become emotional, will you then say bad things about me? Uh, so these are kind of, you know, they're not macroaggressions. They're not the biggest thing that could ever happen to you. But the idea is that when they repeat, when they accumulate, then they can add up to quite serious harm. So I'm not going to spend much time in this talk explaining how that works, um, because that's already been written a lot about, about how it might lead to something like depression. If you get enough of these messages that you're not worthy, um, it might even lead to something like you switch careers. If people don't believe you can be a philosopher, um, or even something like physical health problems of the stress and the tension of constantly dealing with these kind of small, but over time significant attacks. Uh, and, but the reason I won't talk much about them is because other people already have. Uh, so they were coined by Chester Pierce in 1970. And then people didn't talk about them very much, but then in 2010, or a little bit before then, Daryl Wing Sue came out with a book, and then everybody started talking about them. You started to hear about them in academia, you started to hear about them in the newspaper. Um, I did a little bit of research, uh, 25,000 articles on Google Scholar, so those are academic articles and 1.5 million results on Google. So people are talking about these. If you want to hear more about these, you can find out. Um, but today, I want to focus more on something you might not have heard of as much <coughs> before. So again, poll of the room. Who's heard of microaffirmations before reading the title of my talk? Far fewer. Um, so you're not alone. These are not things people are talking about as much. Um, you can see there's only 400 articles on Google Scholar, of which most of them have been written in the past year or two, uh, like 100 times less results on Google. But to give you just a go working definition, these are small benefits that, when repeated, can accumulate into significant advantages for members of marginalized groups. So you can see they're like thought to be sort of exactly parallel to microaggressions. Microaggressions are harms, microaffirmations are benefits. And this might, to give you an example, be something like if you were to ask a question at a talk and someone comes up after you to say, oh, that was a really thoughtful question. It was a good question, well done. So that's a small thing, but it might be significant if you're a member of a marginalized group, if maybe you suffer from imposter syndrome, or, and especially if your question was dismissed by the speaker or badly answered, then to hear from someone that they appreciated your question, they were paying attention, they thought that you were uh, doing a good job, that can really give you a little boost of confidence. So I'm gonna agree with everyone else that these are definitely a good thing to do. We should be doing microaffirmations, we should be studying microaffirmations. And I'm glad it's starting to be studied more. I said there's been that upswing in the past year um, after 
sort of not being talked about very much since being coined in 1970 by Mary Rowe and slightly popularized by Stephen Young. We're now finally starting to talk about them, and that's great. Uh, but even though this is still a comparatively nascent literature, there's still not very much being written, I think what there is being written has kind of gone astray and that we need to correct the course and uh, move away from this beginning of a consensus and talk about them a different way. So I'm going to challenge this definition that's up here and give you my own definition that I think is better. Um, but first, just a plan for the talk so you know where we're going. I'll start out by pointing out problems with the NASA's consensus on microaffirmations. Then I'll propose my own account, which I'll call the redistributive account of microaffirmations. Uh, and then after that, I will do something that's maybe a bit more contentious and defend a, a leveling down account of microaggressions. We'll talk about why uh, that might be more contentious. And then finally, I'll highlight the need for further research on the relationship between microaggressions and microaffirmations. We haven't really talked much about how these two actually fit together and whether they might overlap. So those are some questions for future research, but I'll just start out by talking about this consensus view. So I already showed you these definitions. These are other people's definitions. They're not the ones I'm going to go with. But the basic idea was that they were parallel. And that meant that you could use microaffirmations to kind of counteract the harms of microaggressions. So the thought here is fairly simple, that you, somebody's been harmed in a marginalized group, so they've been the target of a lot of microaggressions. And then when Mary Rowe first proposed them, the thought was that you could sort of build them back up through these intentional microaffirmations, like complimenting them on their talk or whatever other thing you might do, even just making eye contact, not interrupting, paying attention. So, and she also hoped that by developing the habit of doing these microaffirmations, that then we would do fewer microaggressions. So if you're like intentionally trying to help someone, then you probably won't, the thought was, also say terrible things to them. Um, so she hoped that you could kind of not only improve your habits by doing more microaffirmations, but that would also further improve your habits, an extra bonus, you do fewer microaggressions. And I think that, that, all, that that's wonderful, um, and I think we should be doing more microaffirmations, as I've said, uh, and we should be changing our habits. However, I still have some significant worries about this kind of definition. So my first worry is that it just seems kind of condescending. So it seems to be that people are saying that microaffirmations are some sort of benefit that privileged people grant to these weak and needy marginalized people. Um, so when you use microaffirmations, that's supposed to be privileged people intentionally using their privilege for good and counteracting microaggressions. But it just kind of seems almost like a white saviorism or like male heroes sort of stepping in and protecting the marginalized. And I just don't think that's a good way to set up the scope of our moral lives. I think we can do better. So that's one worry I'm gonna talk about and hopefully solve. Uh, the second worry I have is that these definitions hide the operation of privilege. So they're good at talking about marginalization. I think mi microaggressions do contribute to that. But then the other side of the coin is that people who aren't marginalized in a particular space may be especially privileged. And this is a social concept which we'll talk more about um, and I think that what the definitions as they stand hide is that privileged people can receive microaffirmations just constantly. So 
you can see here that just built into the definitions is that microaffirmations can only be done to marginalized people. So that would completely uh, prevent anyone from noticing that the rest of us who are more privileged get these microaffirmations fairly regularly. Again, I'll talk more about that. And then my final worry with this is that it gets like the moral standing wrong. So this is a philosophy term, it misrepresents at super arrogation. That means especially praiseworthy, maybe morally optional. This is, so it looks like from this that microaffirmations are these really good things you can do, but you aren't morally required to them. You don't have any kind of duty to do them. Um, and I think that just gets the moral world wrong and that the correcting the injustice of microaggressions is not something morally praiseworthy or optional. It's actually a duty we all have. Um, yeah. Okay, so those are the problems that I see with the nascent consensus on microaffirmations. And then I'm going to propose my, that my account can help fix these problems. Solving problems. So the first story, condescension, that idea that just the tone of it is off. I think the problem here is that the original definitions assume a sort of overly individualistic or atomistic view of autonomy where people are like these little billiard balls and then the only thing that matters is when somebody else comes and interferes with you and makes you bounce. Uh, and I think that that's, again, not the best view of autonomy we can have. I think we should have instead a feminist relational view of autonomy, which I'll explain here. Okay, so there are a lot of people talking about this. Uh, I'll give you a brief overview. But the basic idea is that autonomy, being able to control yourself, having dominion over your own life, whatever you wanna say, that important value is not just other people not interfering with you. It's more than that. First of all, because other people can be a positive source of support for our autonomy. Indeed, that's what's happening in microaffirmations is that people are attempting to give us these little helps, these little boosts of confidence and boost of trust. I, and we need a, a view of autonomy and a view of microaffirmations that captures the fact that other people can help us and not just hurt us. So again, lots of people talk about this. I'll just give you my favorite. Uh, Diana Myers has this book, Self Society and Personal Choice, where she says that um, not only do we need people to support our autonomy, autonomy is actually not just one thing, but this rich set of different capacities that we all have in order to control our own lives, succeed, follow our goals. We all need these different autonomous capacities like introspection, imagination, uh, volitional capacities and interpersonal capacities. Um, so it might be quite clear how other people can help us with our interpersonal capacities. This would be things like making friends, finding communities, getting support that way, and they can help us out with our projects. Uh, volitional, again, you can't just go it alone and say, I'm I will that this thing exists in the world and I'm planning to pursue this project. And I'm just gonna do it all by myself. No, we need help from other people. And it's more than just other people staying out of our way, but we need people to come to our talks. We need people to um, join us in activism projects. We can't do it by ourselves. Um, and imaginative, so sort of looking more internally, I think even here, we still need help from other people. We need these affirmations and supports in order to be able to imagine possible futures. Like growing up in Midwestern Indiana, I didn't know what certain things looked like. I didn't know that 
women could do certain things. I didn't know that um, Canada looked this way. I needed people to imagine with me what my life could look like in the future. And then finally, I think even introspection, like even this most sort of solipsistic activity requires that other people give us tools to sort of challenge our self-conceptions, ask us questions, make us think of ourselves in different ways. And that even here, even so internally, we still need other people to develop and maintain our autonomous capacities. So that's the abstract theory. Let's put it into practice. Um, answering this question of condescension. So I think what's really wrong here is that condescension isn't, so microaffirmations are not just something that privileged people grant to the weak and needy marginalized people. We all need microaffirmations in order to develop and maintain our autonomous capacities. So we need, remember these are small things. We need people to pay attention. We need people to make eye contact. We need people to offer us empathy, especially as we're imagining our possible futures. Uh, give us the benefit of the doubt, assume um, ultimately, that we make sense, that what I'm saying is coming across to you. Uh, there might be some people who can get really far without anyone else supporting them, but I think all of us, at least sometimes, need this kind of feedback from people in, the, in these small ways. So what the consensus view gets wrong is in seeing microaffirmations as just going one direction, they miss out on the fact that Everyone needs them. They're not something special we give to marginalized people. We all also receive them. Which brings us to my second point, that the consensus view hides the operation of privilege. So here the argument is that our default habits of giving people support and attention favor privileged people, favor white people, favor men, and don't provide the same support to marginalized people. These are our habits. Um, so just to give you one example, there were several of the psych studies I read, psychology studies, about uh, microaffirmations were about gender affirmation in the case of trans and non-binary people and how it was just so wonderful that people's families and people's partners could affirm the gender identities of these marginalized uh, gender groups. And that's true. But also we need to think about how often cis people like myself have our gender affirmed. I, so it's just constant. So like, just imagine going to a frat party, say, and keep track of the number of times somebody says bro or man or dude. And just like, just they're constantly saying, oh, I see, I see the performance you're giving out. I see the way you want to be seen. And I affirm that. I agree with you that you are a man. And women, you know, this gets more complicated because uh, in addition to being cis, we're also then oppressed um, perhaps as um, on the basis of our gender in other ways, but I'm wearing a men's sweater right now and no one is in doubt about my gender presentation. You all realize that I'm trying to be seen as a cis woman. I don't have to worry about it. That is just not on my radar. Okay. So, so just, that was just an example to give you the idea that privileged people get affirmations all of the time, and we only sometimes give them to marginalized people. So everyone agrees, even the consensus view, that we have to do something to resist this default habit in order to make space for supporting marginalized people. Question is how to do that, and I think that most people are giving a bad answer about how to do that. So here it is. So an insufficient answer to this problem 
is that we could just be nice to everyone. I saw this in an article this morning, <laughs> not making this up. And I think that it's a bad answer for several reasons. First, our microaffirmation abilities like attention and trust and empathy are just finite resources. We don't have enough time, we don't have enough energy to do this for everyone all of the time. Maybe you do, um, I do not. So, and I think that this becomes particularly clear in adversarial situations, something like sexual harassment, um, where in this kind of he said, she said case, you don't get to like, yeah, so it's important to resist our defaults because our default is to think about the man's career, be really concerned with his ambitions and state of mind. Uh, this is such a common tendency that Kate Mann in Down Girl has given it a name, empathy, our tendency to empathize with men uh, and believe them. But in giving all of this support and what I would say microaffirmations to and more macroaffirmations to men in these sexual harassment cases, that just means that we tend not to think about the feelings or the future of the women or whoever is the victim of these situations. So this is the idea that to counteract our defaults of believing men too much, we have to believe men less so we can believe women more. And that doesn't mean that you believe women all of the time in every case, it just means that you try to change your habits, that you do it more often, you give them more of the benefit of the doubt uh, and give men less of the benefit of the doubt. So uh, that was somewhat quick. I'm happy to talk more about it in Q&A. But I think basically the answer to the second problem that it, the traditional view of microaggressions hides the operation of privilege is that we need to end the special treatment of privilege by redistributing microaffirmations more re equally. So this also does something to answer my condescension worry that it's not about giving something special to the marginalized. It's about taking away some unfair advantage from privileged people. So then my third problem that I think my view can solve uh, is that the original consensus view misrepresents uh, microaffirmations as something especially praiseworthy that really good people do, but not everyone has to do. And I think that this is the wrong way to look at our moral duties here, because if we don't take steps to overcome our habit of supporting privileged people, we will just continue to enact and perpetuate the impressive inequality that has been our default thus far. And I think that this is a duty that's also not just for privileged people, but for everyone. So it might be simplest to say it for privileged people that we white people benefit from the status quo where we get a lot of microaffirmations, we don't give a lot of them out to people of color. So we, as the beneficiaries of this unjust system, have a duty to fight against it. But this is also true of marginalized people that they have a duty to fight it in a different way. So here, we have internalized our own oppression and also contribute to the oppression of others. So we would have a duty to ourselves and others to resist. And notice, I've said we both times because as a white woman, I'm both in a privileged group and in a marginalized group. And that's again, something that the original view didn't capture. There wasn't room for to talk about these sort of intersections and identities where you can be both a privileged helping the marginalized and a marginalized person needing the same help. 
So I think that this answer to, super, to make uh, microaffirmations morally obligatory, our duty that we have, would also help answer some of the white savior worries that I had, where privileged people are not the only ones who can help the marginalized, all of us can help each other, and actually marginalized communities have traditionally been the best at providing the kind of affirmations that I'm suggesting. So you can get support for your projects from like black communities or black churches or black families, um, and white people have not offered those same supports. So when we look to how do we affirm people well, we should be looking to communities where they already are getting this kind of support and not treating white people as like the answer. Okay, so basically, I, my answer to this problem about the moral standing of microaffirmations is that I think we have a duty to resist our default habits, whether we're privileged or marginalized or some combination thereof. We all have to redistribute our microaffirmations more equally. So here's a nice little graph. Uh, you can see the status quo. Uh, micro privileged people get a lot of microaffirmations. Marginalized people don't. We just want to equalize that. that all, that's all I'm saying in this section. But it does require us to redefine microaffirmations. They can't just be um, small, let's see, sorry, yeah, they can't just be small benefits that repeat, when repeated can accumulate into significant advantages for members of marginalized groups because that only includes marginalized groups. We have to define them in a different way that's more inclusive, small acknowledgments that support individual agency. So that, that was my redistributed account of microaffirmations. Micro uh, and I hope that that, although it's a new view in this literature, I take it to be fairly non-contentious. Uh, now we get to something that is much more contentious and I'm anticipating much more feedback on, so this will be fun. Uh, and I welcome that when we get to the Q&A, uh, but for now I'm trying to answer the question about what truly supererogatory, truly praiseworthy behavior might look like and it might surprise you. Uh, so this is my answer. <laughs> Perhaps we should be petty to privileged people. <laughs> I told you you wouldn't like it. Okay, so first I would have to show you that it's possible to commit microaggressions against privileged people. Uh, so I'll do that as my uh, next step. And then I'll give you two arguments about why I think we should do this, why it would be good to microaggress against privileged people. The first will be about microaggressions would allow us to combat continued inequality, so sort of, a, again, helping the marginalized view. And the second will be about, I think, microaggressions might actually help privileged people to overcome our past excess of affirmation. So it might be good for everyone. We'll see. Okay, but first, to solve the problem of whether it's even possible to commit microaggressions against privileged people, this just requires a redefinition. So microaggressions, uh, instead of being only against marginalized people, would be something more general, like stereotype-based slights that corrode agency. This also has the nice advantage of making microaggressions and microaffirmations parallel again. You can commit both of them because they're not targeting uh, a marginalized person in the definition. Okay. So we could commit microaggressions against privileged people under that definition, should we? Uh, so this first argument, committing microaggressions against the privilege allowed us, us to combat continued inequality. So the basic idea here is that 
even if I convince all the people in this room, even if I convince all the people I ever talked to that we should try to redistribute microaffirmations, we're still not gonna do it. Like I just can't reach enough people. And so the, we'll still have these like lasting inequalities where marginalized people won't receive enough, privileged people will receive way more, uh, as well as marginalized people facing way more microaggressions. And even if we do have this idea that like, I'll fix myself, I'll redistribute my microaffirmations, we still have this drift towards that same unequal distribution because of the way we've been socialized. It's gonna take us a long time, we're gonna make mistakes. Um, so I think there'll just be this kind of persistent gap between the experience of being marginalized, getting not enough microaffirmations, and the privileged getting way more. And that microaggressing against the privileged might help close that persistent gap. So remember here, I'm talking about microaggressions, not macroaggressions. So no revolution at this time. Uh, but these would be things like maybe uh, interrupting, not right now, uh, maybe something like intentionally avoiding eye contact, maybe something like bumping into people when they're walking, um, just to be like, this is my space. Uh, and maybe, maybe they could be even more verbal, where it's something like, I remember those microaggressions, like you're not like other girls, maybe you could do that to more privileged people and say something like, white guys shouldn't talk about this issue, white people can't be trusted, we can't be friends with them, or maybe even men are rapists, not all men. Uh, maybe that's too extreme. We can talk about these. Again, I'm happy to get pushback here. Uh, but I'm not just making these up out of the blue. These are things that I've seen, uh, especially activists in these areas, say things like this and say we should be able to say things like this. Say that you should stand your ground while walking so that white people just don't walk all over you. Um, so, and. I want to be able to say that those activists doing these things, if that's at least a morally permissible action, maybe even there's something praiseworthy about that sort of zealously making space for marginalized people to, to be heard. Especially because these activities can be kind of get dangerous. You'll get a lot of pushback for them, sometimes literal pushback when people keep bumping into you when you're walking. Uh, so I, I at least want to leave room for that kind of response to the continued inequality of microaffirmations and microaggressions. So that's one argument. My second argument is that maybe it's good for privileged people too. So this depends, I'll have to get a little bit into the theory, uh, because people frequently conflate privilege with something like happiness or flourishing. That's not really what it means. Privilege is about social structure. It's not about how your life personally is going today. It's about the kind of uh, supports and uh, opportunities you tend to have over the course of your lifetime that other people don't have access to or don't have as easy access to. So here we're gonna turn to critical race theory um, because they get even more into this, discussing what privilege does and how it works because it's so far from just being happy that it, they actually show how privileged people can be harmed by privileged while simultaneously being benefited in other ways. So one of the first people to talk about this was Charles Mills in his paper, White Ignorance. That's about a lot of other things too. I'm just picking out one little feature of it. But his idea there was that uh, white people are motivated and encouraged to remain ignorant of racism 
so that we can continue to view ourselves as innocent and good, that we're just kind of tempted down this path um, and not even knowing what we're doing. I, and that that may not be, that's certainly not good for everyone else because we're then likely to keep being racist and not notice. But it, it also, Charles Mills sort of leaves space for the idea that it might not be good for us either. And Jose Medina in his book, The Epistemology of Resistance, picks up on this idea. So Medina is more thinking about the kind of, he said, she said, adversarial situations, only about race instead of gender. He's thinking about situations where white people are believed and trusted instead of people of color. And uh, it's because we're all so busy telling ourselves the story that I'm an individual, I'm a good person, white people are in general good and innocent. So Jose Medina thinks that receiving like, too much affirmation, too much credibility, too much trust, too much benefit of the doubt might actually harm white people by maintaining our white ignorance, which would inhibit both accurate perception of the world, we wouldn't see racism when it happens, and also inhibit our empathy for people. We wouldn't understand why maybe it would be so bad to be microaggressed against. We wouldn't understand why living in a social structure like ours where the institutions can be really crushing um, for people without privilege, you just wouldn't see what's happening and you wouldn't feel properly about it. So that's the theory coming back to microaffirmations. So I think, like Jose Medina, that we can apply it to some, even these very small things as well. So an excess of microaffirmations might leave privileged people to develop a sort of pr protective coding that inhibits empathy. And I imagine microaggressions against privileged people might chip away at that protective coding and allow uh, for empathy for growth for human connection and friendships, which would be good for white people too, and men. Uh, so thinking about these again, again, they're microaggressions. So if somebody were to interrupt, then that would, or like bump into someone when they're walking, these are ways to make people literally see you. Like there are ways to overcome those in inhibit inhibited perceptions, um, and there are ways to make people notice what they're doing, what actions they're taking in the moment that maybe they don't even want to be taking, but just don't see. And again, I think the, the verbal ones might also be good here, that these sort of aggressive uh, attacks of saying, like, white guys shouldn't ever talk about um, sexual harassment or white people can't be trusted, that, like, it's aggressive. It makes you sort of think about why is somebody saying that? How could they say that to me? And that kind of response, it could go badly. It might make people just get defensive and shut down, but it could also go well, and it could make people um, think about themselves as not just one individual, but part of a group of people who are acting in certain ways. It could make people question, oh, did I do something to deserve that? Have I talked about an issue where I wasn't really an expert? Um, so maybe, and at the very least, these kind of microaggressions done to privileged people would make us understand what it feels like to be microaggressed against. So that very limited route into empathy of just, oh, somebody did that to me and I did not like it, might uh, open up a new um, way of understanding the world. So those are two arguments for why I think it's overall good um, or at least permissible for people to, at least sometimes, microaggress against privileged people very hedged. Um, but I also wanted to point out that it can be really hard to do this well. 
Um, so a worry about being petty to the privileged is that in intersectional contexts, it's very difficult to microaggress purely against the privileged identity. You risk microaggressing against the marginalized identity instead. So this is an example that I'm still working through. So if you have ideas about this, I'm very happy to hear them. Uh, but one phrase that's become increasingly popular lately is this idea of white tears. So this is when um, white women might call the police on uh, a person of color who's just like napping, um, barbecuing, uh, going to the pool, like these very, like these activities that do not need the police to be involved. Um, and those are real cases. And then, and people talk about this as a case of white tears because the white woman will be distraught and people will come help her. Uh, and I think that it's really good in a lot of ways to remind white women of our privilege and our power to oppress, that our tears, like people will come pay attention to them. In, and then we can use them to damage other people. But then I also have this worry that in only talking about white tears and in talking about white women in this way, in addition to the good things that it does, it also might be a microaggression of sort of reminding us of having our emotions dismissed and associated with hysteria um, and that it might be doing something good but also something that's not just punching up against power, but actually just putting us back in our place where you don't listen to our emotions and they're not seen. So I, I had this, this picture was suggested by um, the PowerPoint, but I like it because it's like, I don't know what to do with these. Like, I'm not sure I, that, like these just seem like really hard cases. Um, and I think that there is a way to do them well and I'm not sure yet what it is. So if you have thoughts, very happy to hear them. But they do take me kind of seamlessly into my very last part of the presentation where we just need more research on these complex relationships between microaggressions and microaffirmations where you might, um, yeah, okay. So here are two pitfalls I just wanna talk about. There's this worry that even if we don't, even if we leave aside section three and we don't try to microaggress against privileged people, we might run into the same problems just when we're doing microaffirmations. We may end up being really condescending, or worse, we might actually just say a microaggression, even though we're trying to give people supports and compliment them. Um, and then given that problem, I'm gonna talk about also, is there any way to know in advance what kind of microaffirmations will actually be helpful and what will just end up making things worse? So for the first one, how do we, uh, can microaffirmations be condescending? Can they even be microaggressive? Uh, again, intersectionality is really important here. So I came up with this example because I was imagining back at the beginning of graduate school, again, I'm from the Midwest, I was like taught to be kind of quiet uh, and I was worried about giving a presentation, I was facing imposter syndrome. So I imagined like somebody really nice coming up after one of my talks, after my first talk. And they might say something like, you were so articulate. You spoke with poise and conviction. You were plenty loud enough. We could hear you in the back. And like, that would be so nice to hear. Like, you could hear me in the back. I'm doing this correctly. I'm doing a good job. So if you said that to me, especially at that time, that would have been a really nice microaffirmation. But then imagine saying it to somebody else. So imagine saying it to a young woman of color and saying, like, this is a classic microaggression to say, you are so articulate. And then 
like that word just has this weight of history for people who aren't white, where it, it means like, I didn't expect you to be good at this. I didn't expect you um, to have anything interesting to say. I'm just complimenting you on your ability to speak at all. Uh, and then to say, to add on, you were plenty loud enough, we could hear you in the back, is just like, are you saying I'm angry? Are you saying that um, like I was yelling? Like it sort of would just, could throw somebody else into a spiral of sort of like, why would you say that to me? I don't, that's not helping. And it's actually, this would be said to somebody else who's not me would be an example of a microaggression. Um, and I really wonder about this kind of example because I, it just seems possible that maybe even in the case of someone else, there's still something affirming about it. Like, especially that line like poison conviction, like those are good and being articulate is good. Um, and being able to be heard is good. Uh, so it might be that this is, like what's actually happening here is that it is a microaggression, but then it's also doing something more affirming. Like somebody, like I think we just need more research to know whether things can be simultaneously microaggressions and microaffirmations. I don't know. And I also wonder if this could help explain like why we see disagreement among members of marginalized groups when they're surveyed they might, some of people might interpret you're so articulate as a compliment, or even you're not like other girls, as like they were trying, they were saying something good to me. But then other people see it as a microaggression, and I think maybe um, both could be reacting to something true about what was said. So we just need more research, we need uh, psychologists to get on this task to start talking about microaffirmations in the right way where we can start talking about this complex overlap where you could do both at once and maybe do way more of one than the other but we just need to be more complex in how we're dealing with these issues and then my final question uh, can we know in advance what microaffirmations are likely to help um, and I think here in addition to the academic research we just need to each do our own research uh, so homework for the talk. Uh, and these are simple things. So like just go to talks, ask questions, make friends, listen to people so that then you know when they talk about and say, like, I told you what was a really nice microaffirmation to get at the beginning of graduate school as a white woman. Listen to other people when they say that it was helpful to hear this, this was affirming versus this did not help and I'm really angry about it. Um, also, the internet exists. Uh, so I say that, but then I sent uh, my undergrad students a few years ago to research this kind of thing online, and just Googling this is not a good idea. <laughs> they ended up with really terrible articles. So what I recommend instead of just Googling it is that you try to find pieces on social media, find blogs, listen to podcasts that are written and recommended by members of marginalized groups. So start, because the idea is that you want to hear from people who aren't like you, so finding what a white person has to say about microaggressions, um, you know, good thing to do, thank you for coming, but also go listen to other people. Okay, and then finally, if you somehow don't have an internet connection, you can ask people for help, you can ask librarians, you can ask me. Uh, so I think that we can't just leave these problems to academics to solve, we need to each try ourselves, and I think that I know these are good things to do because they were recommended on the social media that I follow, and also because this is the way that I've learned myself. So whatever gems in this talk are there, it's from doing these kind of tasks that you can all also do. <laughs>